Hello everyone, this is Saqib. Uh, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Today we have a special episode as we have uh, guest lists. Uh, that includes uh, uh, Matt Zemek, uh, Andrew Burton and Renee Denfeld. Uh, the first half of the podcast is a chat with Matt Zemek uh, and the topics revolve around uh, tribute by Matt to uh, Jana Navotna and then also a discussion on Grigor Dimitrov, where does he go from here? And then the second half of the podcast has uh, Andrew uh, joining in from Houston and Renee taking time out uh, from his busy schedule in Germany. And uh, we discuss topics like uh, shot clock and uh, possible 16th seed change and uh, other coaching changes in the tennis world. Enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent, this is Sakib, and uh, we have Matt Zemek uh, joining us back after uh, a hiatus of a few months, uh, looking forward to exploring some tennis topics with him. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Sakib, thanks for having me, appreciate it. It's a pleasure, I mean, you are, uh, your, your commentary on Twitter is uh, kind of in a league of its own now, so yeah, the pleasure is all our mind and the audience. So let's uh, before we get started. Uh, I mean, uh, this week is kind of a tough week in the tennis universe, uh, especially with the passing of uh, 1998 Wimbledon champion Yana Nawotna. And uh, most people remember, you know, the memory uh, of her uh, breaking down when she lost the 93 final to Graf after she had, you know, an immense lead. And that's something I think it stayed with tennis audiences. And that's that that was one rare occasion when a a loser made connection. Uh, uh, you know, more than the winner did. I mean, Graf is legendary, but that Wimbledon final, I think, just stayed uh, in our memories forever. Uh, what do you recall of uh, uh, Navotna and that run at Wimbledon? Well, I, I think you'd agree with me, Sakib, that uh, people remember Navotna not even for losing the match in 1993 more than winning the 1998 uh, Wimbledon tournament. Not only that, but people remember Navotna specifically for that moment with the Duchess of Kent, more than the fact that she blew a 4-1 lead in the third set with with the possibility of being able to go up 5-1. I think that the specific moment with the Duchess of Kent is the, the single snapshot, the picture that 
tennis fans and and even non-tennis fans who you know occasionally watch Wimbledon uh, during the year. That's the moment that if you when the the name Yana Novotna is mentioned, that is the specific snapshot that more people recall than anything else. And it says something that she could make that connection, as you said, uh, in a moment of breaking down and crying. I mean, it's it's very easy to associate crying with weakness in a lot of cultures, and it's also easy to associate crying with having a terrible day or a terrible moment. But the longer arc of Novotna's life and career showed that that crying on the Duchess of Kent's shoulder it was a positive, transformative moment for her. She got better as a tennis player after that moment. She she steadily improved her game. Uh, you know, she did make the semifinals at the 1998 uh, U.S. Open after winning Wimbledon earlier that summer. So she she became a better, more complete player. And, and also, when she lost the 1997 Wimbledon final to Martina Hingis. You know, she was not crestfallen or destroyed that day. She 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 did not treat that moment as a burden. You know, she was smiling that she got back to a Wimbledon final that year, and that set the tone uh, as the the catapult toward winning it all in 1998 uh, and having that third encounter with the Duchess of Kent this time uh, as the champion. So, Novotna has that moment in 1993. It's the moment that people are going to remember her by, but the important part of remembering that moment uh, is not just that she was uh, uh, free with her emotions and, and courageous enough to show her emotions as they were, but also that she turned it into a positive experience instead of becoming haunted by it. We've seen plenty of athletes in sports, not just tennis over the years, go through a miserable experience, a tormenting experience, a big collapse in an important uh, match or game, and then the rest of their lives, they're just kind of sleepwalking in the shadows, and, and they're no longer having fun. Uh, they can never really shake off that moment. But Novotna did not regard that moment as something to be carried as a burden. Uh, she took it in stride, and because she was able to emote so freely in that moment in 1993, she was able to be at peace with herself. She was able to be comfortable with herself, and that's why her game improved, and that's why she eventually chased down the Wimbledon title, which, of course, gives completeness to her story about perseverance and not losing faith and continuing to enjoy tennis and sport on their own terms uh, as something fun, as something that a lot of people don't get the chance to do professionally. So she embraced that moment. In many ways, she embraced it as soon as that collapse happened against Steffi Graf and showed such a healthy response to what could have been a shattering event for her and her career. Uh, that is a very, very rich legacy that Jan Novotna has crafted. I mean, we, she obviously was a, an iconic doubles player, one of the very best of her or any generation, uh, but the, but what she did in singles, uh, being able to overcome and turn that negative in 1993 into a shining positive, that is a powerful lesson for all human beings, no matter what they do and in contexts 
that don't just include sports but greatly transcend sports. It's a very luminous legacy that she leaves behind. Uh, very well said, Matt. I couldn't have said it better myself. So, yeah, definitely it's a tough week for Tennis World. Navatna is uh, no more. Uh, may she rest in peace. And, uh, yeah, we were not planning, you know, when I uh, had the agenda, but this, these are things that sometimes, you know, this is a homage that, that's very well called for. And uh, I'll urge people, you know, who haven't uh, seen Yana Navatna's footage, I'm sure you've already seen plenty on YouTube. So what a remarkable player. Uh, not an easy segue, but uh, still there was a lot of uh, meaningful tennis that was played this uh, past weekend. Uh, uh, where do you want to start with? So uh, either we can uh, go with uh, David Goffin's amazing week, or we can talk about the winner, who is now world number three, Grigor Dimitrov, who has had a very uh, consistent resurgence outside of the majors. So... Let's stick with Dimitrov then, and uh, we can make a segue into Goffin's year. So I know uh, last time we spoke was after Cincinnati, and you made some very valid points on how you know Dimitrov has come of age with the new coaching arrangement, and he's, he has more clarity in shot making, and looks like with a man with a plan who was blessed with many tools. So I'm going to ask you what how this week measures up. He was the man to beat as soon as Roger Federer departed from the tournament. But to me, uh, when someone breaks through and goes on to win a meaningful big title, uh, his path was really cut down by Nadal's withdrawal and uh, Goffin beating Federer. No fault of his, but uh, this was a very convincing performance. But uh, I still think I'll be more of a believer when he takes down a Djokovic or a Federer in a meaningful match and, you know, when the chips are down. Well, that that is obviously the next threshold or at least one of the next thresholds that Dimitrov has to clear in order for him to, t- you know, to take the next step to where we regard his career as a fully realized, complete tennis career. But this is, this should be viewed as a significant step in the right direction because for any athlete, no matter the sport, one has to be able to achieve certain things concretely uh, to be able to cultivate legitimate belief. I mean, obviously, athletes have to tell themselves that they can do anything uh, when they're competing. This is true for any player, no matter how accomplished. World number one, world number 50, world number 200, they all have to believe they can do it. So in that sense, athletes are always telling themselves uh, that they can achieve, but in a certain sense, it represents faking it until you make it. So in, in order to genuinely become a fully realized athlete uh, of championship caliber, one has to be able to make it at least a few times. And so even though uh, Federer and Nadal were not in his path, uh, for obviously for different reasons, it nevertheless remains that Dimitrov got the job done. And so that simple act of getting the job done, and more particularly going through tough three setters in the semifinals and the final, uh, you know, that, that can only help. Uh, it's not really an empty calories accomplishment because Sock and Goffin had played really well during the week uh, and had shown dimensions of their own selves uh, that, that much of the tennis world had not seen before. We have not seen Jack Sock play this well before. We have not seen Goffin uh, deal with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer this well before. And, of course, he also beat Djokovic 
in Monte Carlo before his injury at Roland Garros. So Dimitrov went up against formidable competition, not not the world number one or world number two, but still formidable competition. And there were points in those matches where he was teetering on the edge of trouble, and he rescued himself both times on Saturday and Sunday. So just the simple act of doing this, while it's not on the same plane as beating a dollar Federer, it certainly gives Dimitrov every reason to think that he can now take more steps in his career. And I would say on that point about taking the next step, that while beating Federer and Nadal uh, and, and, and Djokovic is, you know, the hurdle he will ultimately need to clear to, to prove himself at a higher level, as you said, Sakib, the, the first thing, the first order of business before that is simply getting to play them regularly at the majors, regularly getting to quarterfinals or semifinals. I would say this, that if Dimitrov makes one major final next year but loses in the second or third round of the three others, I would not view that as positively as making four quarterfinals but losing all four times. I think the consistency throughout the year is, is really the next hill for Dimitrov to climb. He has to show that he can play for 10 months or at least seven or eight Instead of being really good for two months, really bad for two months, he was flipping the on-off switch a lot this season. If he can go through 2018 with a very consistent season, which will enable him to play the big three, big four a lot in quarterfinals and semifinals of tournaments, then if we look at it, if we look at Dimitrov's career in a longer term context, through 2019, 20, 21, when he gets to 2020 and 21, and if he establishes a track record of that consistency, which has yet eluded him, he will then be in that top tier at the major tournaments. And with the, the big four getting particularly old, I think Dimitrov would enter a period of time where he will be favored to win majors. Not next year, not in 2019, but if we're looking three or four years down the line, if Dimitrov establishes that higher threshold of consistency that I just referred to, he will position himself in, in three or four years to be the ultimate favorite at major tournaments. So that's really the bigger perspective for Dimitrov to take out of London. Uh, let's uh, welcome our guests. So we have tennis writers, Rene Denfeld, uh, joining from uh, Germany, and uh, Andrew Burton from Houston, Texas, uh, to Tennis with an Accent. Welcome, guys. This is your second time on the podcast. Hey, Steve. Good to be here. Hey, thanks for having me back. Hope you all well. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners uh, will be happy because uh, your tennis commentary is uh, pretty intriguing. Both of you contribute in your unique ways and keep uh, the tennis Twitter very active. So... Guys, no surprise. I mean, uh, on the agenda today, there are a few topics that uh, uh going to impact the tennis, how tennis is going to be played in uh, 2018 and even Grand Slam tennis in 2019. But first, uh, there's a big Davis Cup final looming large. So let me ask you, Andrew, first. Uh, one of your lost-gen boys, David Goffin, lost to another lost-gen uh, boy, uh, Dimitrov, uh, last week in London. So how do you fancy his chances going into this uh, 
big final against the French? Well, the performance that Goffin put up at the World Tour Finals, I hope is something that gave him some confidence and gave his team some confidence because if you reflect on where Davy Goffin was after the second round-robin match, he had been whooped by Dimitrov, I think it was 6-love, six 6-2, six and there was, there was some sense that he was last man standing in his match against Nadal. You know, both of them came into the World Tour Finals running on fumes, and then Goffin seemed to run into a buzzsaw playing Dimitrov in their round-robin match. So to see Goffin in the final, an extremely well-contested final, having beaten Federer in the semi-final and apparently coming through the final, having acquitted himself extremely well, um, you know, no sign really of uh, any twinges, I'm hopeful that for the the Belgian team, this is going to be a shot in the arm and we'll have a very, very interesting final. Okay, so René, what's your take on the French? I I think we can agree they are the overwhelming favourite just uh, on the basis they it's a very deep team compared to uh, that of Belgium. And France hasn't won this thing, I think, if I'm not... uh, If if I'm correct, they haven't won it since 91 when Guy Forger won it... uh, back in the day beating U.S. in the final. So do you see Goffin and Co. can cause an upset or are you also on the same page as me seeing France uh, as think, a clear favourite? I think I might here? have to correct you. I think they won it in 2001, maybe. I think that was... Oh, they did? Okay. No. For ninth time there okay. and, and tenth time... Tenth change, maybe, right? but I think so at least. Um, anyways, for me, uh, the, the, the thing is the Belgian team is going to need one surprise match because I I think it's fair to say that whoever's going to end up playing the single uh, single rubbers um, not against Goffin is going to be the favourite. So if it's uh, if it's going to be um, Tsonga against um, Dassi or if it's going to be um, uh, Gasquet against Gassi or, or, or however it's going to shape up, um, I think that's just going to be uh, those should be the bankable points as well as the doubles with uh, Herbert and Mahou. That should be the bankable points for the French team that should see them through. If um, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty hopeful actually for 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 Belgium in the sense that Goffer is going to be able to carry the momentum from. From from the ATP Finals over to over to Lille, and I think he'll put up a pretty good show. And I I put him, I think most people would put him favorite in in his matches. Um, but that then by no means uh, a walk in the park or easy points. Um, but I would I would agree with the general assumption that um, France is the favorite going in there, but. I, I can I can speak from not from personal experience, but we played against a Gofferless or Germany played played against a Belgium without Goffer in February and everyone presumed with Zverev, with Cole Schreiber, with um Zverev's uh, older brother as well on the team, everyone presumed oh Germany's got this got this wrapped up and uh, it was a pretty bad beating that the German team got. So it depends. If the does the court play really quickly? If I, I think if the court plays quicker that plays into plays more into the hands of the Belgium team, and if there's a low bounce and a quick court, but if it's a slow hard court, then I think it it might uh, help out the French team a bit more. 
Yeah, and I think uh, the names you took uh, may very well end up representing uh, France in the mm-hmm. final. And then another guy who could be in the mix is Luca Pui. And I firmly believe it's also his time that he should be making the the top eight invite at uh, you know at London at the O2 because he obviously has a game. So you you see this could be his opportunity uh, because Davis uh, Cup has been a launching pad for many in the past. You know to have greater things in the next calendar year. How do you see his matchup with Goffin if the two were to play? To me, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna back Goffin all the way there because to me, I I feel. We had good moments, a couple of good moments this year, but it's it's been a very weird year for him, from my point of view at least. There have been some really good moments, but there have been some in- huge missed opportunities. I think the match against Diego Schwarzman at the at the U.S. Open is is, is gonna uh, stick out for most people when they when they look back, and possibly also for Lucas uh, for Lucas Pre when he looks back at this year. And um, it would be a great opportunity for him to make a mark and, and, and put a foot down, but I would go, I, I would back off her in, in, in a matchup. With, with There's him. also a, a minor wild card in that uh, Pierre Gerbert um, nicked his back a bit when he was playing in the doubles and had to withdraw from the doubles at the World Tour Finals. So shades of Federer at the same stage of the season in 2014 and doubles is one point. The early indications are that Herbert is likely to recover and likely to be ready to play for France in uh, the doubles match in the the middle of the, the tie. But it would be interesting if uh, you had a, a 1-1 situation and you were looking at that doubles point. That would be uh, an interesting question at that stage yeah this is a good observation andrew i know doubles is even though it's one point but that's usually the point that swings uh you know momentum and uh, countries in the past that have had uh one star singles player this is uh, where the saturday doubles has always been key even though french are uh like i said have more depth but you know that's that that combination of mahu and herbe is pretty pretty prominent if you know they were to Secure that point. So yeah, that's something to look forward to this weekend. How the doubles shape up. Uh, let's do a quick segue on, on what tennis Twitter has been talking about for the last, I think, what twenty four thirty hours since the news came. So I'll go with you, Andrew. Uh, what's your take on the shot clock that's going to be introduced uh, next year, and uh, does it change the dynamic of tennis viewing? Is this is the clock something that's going to be on the screen? And uh, it's still early days, but uh, how are you envisioning this change? So I think I'm right in saying that the shot clock is actually going to be just for the qualification rounds and not for the main draw tournament. So so when the announcement came out, I was, you know, sitting upright and saying, aha, you know, we'll we'll see some of the the players who have talked about this in uh, you know slightly dismissive terms actually brought up on this, but I think I'm right in saying that it's just going to be for the qualification rounds as it was trialed at the US Open as well. Okay. So, yeah, then I guess uh, they, they're going to make a decision later if that's uh, the shot. And so, you know, having, having put that qualification in there, we had multiple experiments at the recent Next Gen tournament in Milan 
some of which I'm I'm praying don't make their way into uh, main draw tennis in the 2020s. For example, the the first to four scoring. I, I hope that that dies a death. But the shot clock seemed to be something that the players integrated into their games. It uh, it didn't seem to create any uh, tremendous difficulty for them. I would like the shot clock to to be a part of main draw tennis. I think that the umpires have the ability after you know long points and and intense rallies to give the crowd time to settle and to start the clock. But I think that very often players are able to manipulate the the time to go for a towel, to gather multiple balls. And I'm, I'm really in favor of saying, okay, you ought to be ready to play within about 30 to 35 seconds of the last time that a ball was struck. And I got to say, I feel I, I mean, I watched quite a lot of qualities okay. at, at the US Open this year, and to me, and also from from the conversations that I had with with quite a number of players, I did not get the feeling that a lot of them were incredibly annoyed by it or incredibly disturbed by it. The general consensus seemed to be more along the lines of, "Well, it was a bit odd at first, but after a while, you just got into you just got into rhythm and you just started play and and you just kept playing and you, maybe you." Just went for it a little bit quicker, but um, overall, I did not get the sense that it was massively disturbing, and that uh, I, I never, I barely, except for maybe one or two occasions, I did not see a um, a player uh, surpass that that those twenty five seconds, um, or the, or having seeing a player like lose a first serve or anything that barely happened, as far as I can remember. Um, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't mind having it in 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 the main draw either. Uh, as far as I understood as well, it seems to be qualies only for now. But if it made its way into the main draws, to me, I would be I would be okay with it. I'm I'm not as strong I'm not as strongly opinionated when it comes to it. But I feel like based on the sort of based on how I saw it at the US Open or in US Open qualies, I I think it should work out okay. But if you do have a big, a loud, raucous crowd, maybe at uh, at, at 12:30 and on on Rod Laver Arena on one of the outer courts that might be a bit tricky in terms of um, juggling that and that might be a bit of a challenge also for the umpires of course. I think one other thing I'll I'll, I'll throw into the the conversation is that I think tennis is a really interesting game in the sense that there are certain things that uh, are are basically not up to the umpire's discretion. So if a line judge calls a foot fault, the umpire can't overrule. That's just called by the line judge. And now we have the Hawkeye system where if Hawkeye rules the ball was in or out, the umpire can't overrule. But there are some things that really are at umpire's discretion. For example, enforcement of code violations. And the shot clock is going to be something where we might see some umpires basically touching the button for the shot clock as soon as the last ball is called out or the, the, a winner is struck, and some umpires using more discretion. And, I, and it'll be interesting to see, if it is brought into main draw tennis, how that actually plays out. Okay, so 
that's uh, that's a good agreement so far. I think everybody's on the same page. Uh, uh, Rene, did you watch any of the next gen finals? And are there any uh, changes, as Andrew said, that you would not want to see, or vice versa? Well, I wouldn't want to see the draw ceremonies from the next next gen finals transferred <laughs> to, to all the other draw ceremonies. <laughs> that would not be something that was, that was not, not something that I would um, be massively fond of, to to put it mildly. Um, but on a more serious note. Uh, I think uh, we need line umpires. I think um, just replacing them with with Hawkeye. I, I'm pretty sure John McEnroe would be would be elated to have that sort of um, change. Uh, but I do believe that there's a good reason that we've got line line umpires and umpires in general. Uh, I I thought the um, Personally, I'm not I'm not against on-court coaching in general, but I thought the whole thing with the headset was quite bizarre and not not massively not not a big fan of that. I didn't think the uh, I thought the one medical timeout rule isn't it's probably not perfect the way that it was done in in Milan, but I don't think it's it's a bad idea in general because it does get manipulated from time to time. Not by everyone. I'm not insinuating that player A or player B or player C is constantly playing, yeah, tricking, tricking the game essentially, and uh, with with tactical medical timeouts. But I do think that that is something that might be worth at least thinking about, or at least thinking about how can can one what needs to be changed in a way in order to get that maybe in, into a into a bit of a better direction. Yeah, fair enough. The medical timeouts have always been at least a gray area as far as, you know, tennis fans discuss. And uh, like you said, it's hard to, uh, you know, monitor that uh, since the rules allow that. So, yeah, that could be something definitely worth looking in. And, uh, and now the big one, I mean, uh, I'm sure you both have already commented and been part of many discussions with the 16 versus 32 seat change that's been proposed to go in effect in 2019. So, Andrew, where, where do you stand on that? And uh, how do you see that affecting uh, both? Uh, which tour will be affected more or doesn't matter at this point what tour we're talking? Um, I'm, I'm not honestly sure it's going to affect either tour more. Um, I am essentially neutral on 16 seats versus 32 seats. I can see arguments made for both. There's a very interesting piece in 2014 uh, by Jeff Sackman on the Heavy Top Spin blog looking at the effect of 32 seats, um, where he looks at the way that um, it really impacts players who are ranked from 17 to 32 and players who are ranked, let's say, from from 32 to, to about 60 or so. And in Jeff's analysis from 1989 to 2000, men's players ranked 17 to 32 reached the third round about twice as often as people outside that level. But then when you went to 32 seeds, from 2002 to 2013, men seeded outside the top 16, so from 17 to 32, reached the third round 53% of the time, 
compared to 12% of the time for unseeded players. So if you're ranked in that 17 to 32 area, 32 seeds has, has been a bonus for you. So there's arguments in favor, there's arguments against. One of the things that I'm, I'm quite interested in is that the ITF seemed to announce the decision to go to 32 seeds without obviously consulting the ATP and the WTA and the, the, the players groups within those. And it'll be interesting to see over the next few months or so whether both of the tours basically say, yes, we were consulted, we're good with it, we don't have a problem, or if either the ATP or the WTA step up and say, wait a second, this is something that we need to have more conversations about. I'm, I mean, pro- people who've, I don't know, who've, who've seen me comment on it no, really rightly draw the conclusion that I'm leaning more towards uh, the 32, um, 32 seeds. I just feel that at this point it is um, just, it, it gives a little more order. I mean, 127 players out of the 128 are going to lose anyways, but with 32 seeds, there's a bit of a, a slightly improved chance, in my opinion, that we're going to have some of the better matches a little bit later, uh, which I think is incredibly important to um, to TV. It's incredibly important to the tournaments. Um, I've lived through, and I think we all lived through, Sharapova against Halep, which I think is the uh, was was the Thunderdome scenario. I mean, Sharapova obviously being unseeded regardless of 16 or 32, but to have a match of this significance um, in the first round, it might create a big buzz for a tournament. It might also mean that one of the biggest names of said tournament is basically gone after the first night session. And I don't, I'm, I'm just not sure if that's anything that a tournament should be striving for. If you look at the current WTA rankings from one to thirty. Obviously, there's been uh, there's been a slump on the side of uh, Angelique Kerber. There's been Serena who's uh, who's who's been out with, preg- with with her pregnancy, and they're all they're all in theory outside of the current rankings. So, if the top sixteen seed solution was um, implemented right now, you could have matches like Kvitova, uh, Bliskova in the first round. Serena against Venus in the first round. People are, and, and people were like, oh, well, but you'd all tune in and watch. And I was like, yes, of course I would tune in and watch, but do I want it in the first round? Do I want that much in the first round? Not really. And another thing that kind of annoyed me or just that, that just rides me up the wrong way in a way is that uh, for the past couple of years, I feel that um, this sort of, that the WTA has been getting a bit of a, this, the, yeah, a bit of slack for having this unpredictability in the first round, in, in the first few rounds, and oh, so many, so many seeds and so many names go out, and now we change it to sixteen seeds for both the WTA and the ATP, and because we need more excitement in on the maybe on the men's side in particular in the first week, and it, it just feels a little bit like we're measuring with two different sets of rulers here, and. I'm pers- I, f- personally, I think 
for the ATP, it might not even be the worst idea because there has been this very dominant group at the top that has been that had that did have a stranglehold on on the big titles at least until this year. This year has seen things change a little bit, except for the majors, but on the master side at least. Um, but on the women's side, you had plenty of excitement in the first week. If you did not find enough excitement in the first week, then you were just quite blatant, blatantly not looking hard enough. So this is where I stand, and I would be fine with sticking to 32. If you want to go back to 16, okay, fair enough, but at least at least be coherent in how you how you argue your case and how you and, and what sort of reasons you give in order to have that. No, I think you make you both make fair points. Uh, so I'll just uh, throw this back at you as a question, uh, hmm. Renee. Uh, with 32 seeds, it's going to be very unlikely that we'll ever see a Boris Becker, 17-year-old, breaking through because it's going to be enormously hard. Not only you know tennis has become more physical because the surfaces you know. Uh, allow more attritional long rallies. So it's going to be very hard for someone to go through this kind of a task. And if you break it down to 16, a Nick Kyrgios taking Federer Djokovic out on the first Monday or Wednesday, it really opens up things for a lot of people. And that kind of unpredictability, like you said, could be good in a way because the top four in ATP have been way too consistent. And I believe some of that consistency is, is inflated due to these cushioned seedings. Fair point. Fair point for for but yes, yes, yes and no. I do think there's all there's also been for a long time on on the ATP. I felt like there's also been a bit of a mentality by those outside of that very very strong group that it, it almost felt like a lot of the people who were basically at the doorstep of making Slam finals or making Slam semifinals. I don't know. I'm thinking of. Berlich, Tsongai, uh, 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 Ferrer, who've been just outside of that sort of top five group of, of the big four, essentially, that people kind of, I, I feel like mentally there, there was a bit of a resignation. Well, we're not going to get there anyways. Like one of the only people who's been able to break through that very late in his career is Stan Wawrinka. But beyond that, it has not felt like people were just really biting biting away at them with, with the sort of consistency that would have been needed over, I don't know, seven or eight or nine years, because that's for, that's how long they've been up there. I'm not necessarily sure it's the cushion seeds. I think it's also, it, it takes a little bit, it, it takes a bit, bit away from just how good uh, Djokovic, Nadal and, and Federer have been, and also Murray in terms of his consistency at the big, big tournaments. Um, I think it's, it, to me, it comes more down to this on, on the ATP side, but um Look, I I feel there's been enough. We've had 32 seats on the men's side and 32 seats on the women's side at the US at the last slam, and I mean just look at that last slam. That that is that is all I'll say. If if that if you did not feel like there wasn't an, if you felt there wasn't enough unpredictability in at the US Open this year, then I don't know. You must have been watching a different tournament because I'm I was like looking around each corner i was like ah oh, okay this is where we end up cool let's 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 move move along and if we end up with 16 i think this these tournaments are fun but you want to have both you want to have tournaments where it's a bit reliable but you also want to have the stories and the the odd upset but you don't want to have it to turn out turn into an upset festival and i think reducing it to 16 seeds on both sides is 
gone turn it into even more of an upset festival. Yeah, let me ch chip in here for a second. That I, there's a there's a term that's often used in tennis, both on the women's side and the men's side, which is depth. And when I think about the term depth, I think about the the ability to play really good tennis at the um, a player who's ranked 30, a player who's ranked 60, a player who's ranked 100, a player who's ranked 150. If you watch a player ranked 100, let's say, and you you think they are playing very, very good tennis, that's what depth is. There's another term that I introduced when I was writing uh, at the changeover, which is called stability, which is basically a measurement of how often the the last rounds in a Grand Slam tournament are played by the same players. So no surprise that for the ATP in the Big Four era, you have a number of years in which most of the semifinals are contested by the Big Four. Uh, I think that the the highest number of semifinal places that went to the Big Four was 14 in one year. And so you, you look at that and say, okay, well, you know, that stability is something that that's something that the ATP has either enjoyed or endured in the last few years. But then when you go back to 2000 to 2007, it was actually the WTA side that was much more stable. You had players like Lindsay Davenport, the Williams sisters. Martina Hingis, Kim Kleisters, they were regulars at the final stages of the tournament. So the two tours kind of flipped in terms of stability between the, the first part of the 2000s and the second part of the 2000s. And I, I think that Renee and I are um, agreeing violently, if you like, that you have to be very careful about making structural changes to a sport because of what you see that's been going on in the last five to 10 years or so. The tennis is a, is, has a much, much longer lifespan going back you know, to the start of the open era and beyond and responding to, well, the big four are taking all of the semifinal places and there aren't very many interesting matches involving the top seeds on the men's side in the early round. So let's go back to 16 seeds. You want to be a bit careful about making structural changes in response to things that you've seen in the last few years. It's all a bit knee jerk. I, I tend to agree. And even if it is a knee jerk, it's based more in 2010 to 2015 or 2016. It's, if you base it on 2017, yes, of course, you've got Rafa and Roger both winning two slams. But beyond that, take Rafa and Roger out of the equation on the ATP side. It could have been a very different year in terms of slam winners uh, who reach a slam final. So I, I'm, I'm very much uh, that that is something I'll definitely sign in terms of just just keep try to keep perspective and particularly long term perspective when 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 looking at, at these things. And then flipping to the WTA side, you had Ostapenko winning the French Open and you had Sloane Stevens winning the US Open. And, you know, if, if you had backed 
either of those guys before the tournament, I, I would like to get your picks before any Grand Slam happens. So I think one of the really interesting things in tennis, so Saqib, you mentioned earlier Boris Becker and, and Becker's emergence. There's this balance between the what you can think of as the familiar and the established versus people coming through. And trying to maintain that balance is a really important question for those running the sport. Uh, absolutely. And uh, you both make very valid points. And I'm also maybe slightly just I want to see a change, like even though it's knee-jerk, like 16 seeds, because I'm slightly old school. And some of my friends, when we break down tennis discussion, I'm a big fan of Big Four and I don't want to belittle what they have done. But I definitely think back in the day, Lendl and Sampras also exhibited a lot of consistency when surfaces were quite, you know, playing different in terms of uh, surface speed. And also we had 16 seeds and there was an occasional upset when Jamie Yuzaga took Sampras out or Lendl lost to David Wheaton. But overall, these guys were there contending for most uh, slams and major championships. So I'm fine with either way, but I would just be a little more interested to see if this generation, which has thrived so much in consistency and predictability, if, uh, of course, 2017 US Open is an exception. But I would, I would be excited to see if uh, even if the change is short-lived if 16 seeds, how at least the ATP, this generation uh, reacts to that kind of a seeding bracket. But it's all good. I mean, I, I'm also fine with uh, the way things are. Maybe I'm not, you know, enough of a vision to see this can disrupt, you know, the good balance we have. So uh, it's a good conversation that, you know, it's going to, I think, uh, be a tennis topic for the next year. So let's switch gears here with the coaching announcement. I think, is it confirmed or will be official of Radek Stepanek joining as a I think uh, Novak Djokovic teams, Renee, how do you see that marriage? And with Agassi in the house, do you know uh, anything that we don't know at this stage? Have you heard this, if it's confirmed? I have not. I don't think I've heard anything more than anyone else has heard. I've seen the reports in Czech media and, and, and all of that. And I think I dare say I remember something along those lines that it's been rumored uh, like maybe a month ago maybe in October I it is not the first time that I saw this this autumn I saw it at some point at some point of the maybe after the US Open at some time I'm not, I'm not 100% sure but it when, when it uh, broke quotation marks no quotation marks whatever it didn't it didn't throw me off my chair in terms of being the biggest surprise in the world I think it's interesting um, particularly for um, not so much, not so much for Djokovic, maybe for Djokovic as well, but particularly for Stepanek to retire and and jump straight into straight into a coaching position potentially with one of the most successful players of of all time. Essentially, I find that a very uh, that that's really really quick uh, quick turnaround, and I'm if if it does come to pass, I'm. I'm. I'm being. I, I mean, it's going to be intriguing. Regardless of of, of um, Novak Djokovic potentially hiring uh, Stepanek, his next year is going to be an interesting one. Um, but with Stepanek on board, I think it's going to. Yeah, it 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 adds a little more, a little more spice just to see how does this how does this all um, work out in terms of uh, the characters that will be on on this team because. It, You've got Stepanek, you've got Agassi, you've still got Pepe Mas, I think, in the 
background or maybe not in the background, maybe more in the foreground, tough to say, and uh, Djokovic as well. So it's an it's an interesting combination of people. I'm curious to see how it's all going to pan out next year if it if it does work out as we assume. Maybe yes, Mario Mario Ancic yeah. at Wimbledon. <laughs> you know who knows. <laughs> Uh, so, a similar question to you, Andrew, with the, in respect of Andy Murray and Lendl splitting for the second time. I know there's not much revealed. Looks like Murray's still going to keep, you know, Delgado and the team he has. Uh, how do you see his off-season transitioning into uh, the early slam, you know, we are approaching? And uh, what are your expectations of Murray if you have seen him play Federer in Glasgow, even though it was an exhibition? Yeah, I, I, I never read anything into exhibitions. Murray was, um, you know, able to run around and hit tennis balls for, a, you know, on the order of an hour to an hour and a half. Um, I would have been staggered if he hadn't been able to. I think that for both Murray and Djokovic, but then also potentially for some of the other players who are, returning there's a there's a question of how much they are feeling physically on the the back end of the order of 10 to 15 years of of high level tennis and how much that that they are able to to fully recharge when you look at at Federer and Nadal Moving into the 2017 season, it, it it seemed like they were dealing mainly with what you could think of. Certainly for Federer, a traumatic injury. You know the the knee that he wrenched, apparently running his daughter's bath, then didn't fully rehabilitate, and then he took time off to rehabilitate that. So Federer was able to to come back if you like, completely healed. Murray's injury, the the hip injury that he's been dealing with for, for some time, that that potentially is something that, that he will carry now for the rest of his career. Djokovic's elbow injury um, is a little bit more mysterious. There's questions about a fracture, which doesn't doesn't sound right at all to me. I would have imagined that that would have been picked up if it was actually a a fractured bone that you would pick that up typically by x-rays. So maybe it's something else connected to the way that the elbow works. So a lot's going to depend on whether either Murray or Djokovic returns essentially recharged and healed, or whether they're basically managing chronic injuries as Nadal has learned how to do in the last few years. And they move into their thirties essentially trying to to balance how much they play and how how you know how able they are to play versus the undoubted ability that they bring to to go deep in tennis tournaments and i'll be i'll be really honest here i think that djokovic is far more or feels far more similar in a way this the people are probably going to tear their hair out at this, but I feel like Djokovic feels more similar to to Federer in the sense that Federer has had the luxury. And, and it's of course, it's good. It's He has maintained his body incredibly well, but he's had a largely injury-free 
career and uh, rarely had to do the full recovery from surgery from uh, uh, treatment from phys- from from all of this or from taking time longer time off of tour off of the tour um and Djokovic had a similar couple of years at least from 2011 until 26 20 27 20, late 2016 because Djokovic's elbow has also been going on for for a little while that's also been been, been a thing that's that went on for a year i believe almost um but with Murray, I'll be very honest, Murray, I'm actually a little a little worried with regards to how much, how if he's going to be back 100% or if it's going to be always a 97, 98 kind of percent thing because he's had his fair share of pretty significant injuries, of pretty, um, of, of major surgeries, back surgery, um, now, now the hip issues are, uh, those are not necessarily things that anyone should take lightly. So I'm, I hope for the game that Murray is going to be able to recover fully and come back as strong as he was at this time last year. But I think the question marks to me are a little bit bigger. Yeah, absolutely, Renee. Uh, hip-related injuries are you know usually tough, and you both are right. Uh, we've had some career-altering, if not ending, injuries relating to hip with Kuga Kiraten and Leighton Hewitt. So, yeah, let's keep an eye on Andy Murray. Hopefully, you know, he manages it in a way that, you know, he can be back to 100% on the court. So, I know I can go on, but, you know, I'm sure it's getting late in Germany and, you know, we've already exceeded, you know, I thought this is going to be a half an hour chat, but, you know, thanks for doing this, guys. And uh, we should do this again, maybe when the season's starting, sometime in Australia, uh, your bandwidth and availability permitting. But it was lovely chat, and I will be posting it soon. Thanks. It was a pleasure hosting you both. Thanks a lot, and happy Thanksgiving. And uh, Renee, happy winter sports. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So.